Good morning. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our 14th episode of A Girl Like Me Live, which is a new interactive live streaming series advancing health and wellness discussions and education among women living with and vulnerable to HIV. Every two weeks, ICC COVID will sit down with different co-hosts to chat about key topics in our communities. In today's session, I will speak with Dr. Vicki Lynn um, about why language matters. I think that this is such an important conversation and I'm so happy to be here with you. So, Vicki Lynn, do you mind just starting us off with some like introducing yourself some of your affiliations and how you came to know the well project i'm on mute that's just something we do these days right hi everybody i am dr vicky lynn um and thank you cc and the well project for putting these together i'm so excited to be here to talk about language um, i first got involved with the well project oh my gosh it's been almost a decade ago i can't believe that it's been that long i started out as a girl like me blogger i was a cab member for a while i've done some other webinars and and fact sheets and different things with the well project and i'm just so excited to be here to talk about language um i'm also a person who's been living with HIV for 36 years. So I'm not only um, a academic, but I'm also a woman living with HIV. So I have a lot of different experience and knowledge, and I'm just so excited to be here to talk about one of my favorite subjects, because it's so important to how we feel about ourselves. I absolutely and certainly agree. Um, I thank you for being so such as Maria said a well project OG you all have definitely carried this organization you know to a point where I can and women like me can be a part of it and I'm so grateful for this space um it wasn't until I became involved with the well project in like more in advocacy that I even realized that the language I was using about my own self you know was impacting how I was experiencing this HIV diagnosis. Why did HIV, um, the language that we use to describe HIV, when did you realize that it was affecting, you know, other things? Oh, I get, my journey, of course, it, it expands 36 years. So in the beginning, I heard a lot of messages coming from the media, from even social science, from from even my providers, my family. But it wasn't until, oh my goodness, it was almost about 10 years ago that I, had, I was doing some work on myself. I'm in recovery. So part of being in recovery is taking a good look inside yourself. And um, I started paying attention to the terminology I was using in my own head to describe myself. And it didn't feel very good. It wasn't very nice. I, I used the messages that I that I heard from my parents, that I heard from society, you know, I felt dirty, unclean, not worthy. Um, and at the same time, I was also working on my first master's degree. And so then I started looking and reading the terminology that was published in scientific journals. And I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel good. What I'm reading, they're talking about me, but it feels so stigmatizing and so, you know, othering. So I'm get, we're being put in this other category that we're not part of the in-group. So it really, it started with me paying attention to what was in my head. And then I just started hearing and seeing that terminology everywhere, not just in relation to HIV, but in relation to substance use and mental health and even being overweight. I mean, there's so many areas of our life that language, it just plays such a huge role in how we feel. Absolutely. And when I'm like, as a newly diagnosed person back in 2008, you know, I relied heavily on the internet to give me information about what I was experiencing. And those those things that I was able to find definitely did not feel hopeful and it made me feel like I was gonna die. And, you know, I don't know, I, be, I adopted the terminology because I was learning from Google, you know, how I was supposed to do this. 
and the one thing you know like infected like hiv infected or you know somebody goes and takes a std test and it comes back negative and they're clean or i don't know you know just all these other things that all these things that were said had me questioning my own self and my own worth and i didn't realize that it started with words um language i'm, I'm reading a comment from krista which we're going to stop and <laughs> address that. Vicki Lynn has had such a significant impact on the language we use at the Well Project in helping to advocate for people first language and how language can be so stigmatizing if we let it. Absolutely. And as a new member on the Well Project team, I can definitely see the effects of that. Like we are always constantly, you know, making sure that we're being inclusive. We're making sure that we are using people's first language. Um, and thank you and hopefully you know it's something that just continues to radiate out and that other people pick up on this as well because it can affect someone's whole life i wasn't so worried about what other people were saying it's always like been that internal thing so thank you for addressing it even Yes, being a bigger woman, you never realize how, you know, the words that are being used to describe people that are not big, you know, could affect you or the substance use, substance use. So thank you a lot. Um, what are some of the biggest changes that you have seen since you began doing this work when it comes to language? It's so exciting because I, when I started doing this work, there was very little information out there. I was having to pull and really dig to find stuff. Um, and over the past 10 years, and I think especially during the past three years, I've just seen an explosion in all kinds of different disciplines on their focus on language. And it just makes me so happy to see other people talking about it and being more aware that how damaging this terminology can be. Um, I, it just, it warms my heart so much. And, and, and I have people reach out to me all the time. And somebody reached out to me the other day and he said that it's not really stigmatizing language. He called it prejudicial language. And I'm like, that got me so excited because I had never heard somebody use that phrase. And then I started digging into that. And, and, and I just got a really great book that was written in 1954, The Nature of Prejudice. And it talks about the terminology and how people, we use that terminology to kind of other people and, and put them in, they're not in Okay, so we have in groups and out groups. And when we use certain terminology, we're excluding people and putting them in an out group so they're not like us. So somehow that gives people permission to maybe discriminate against or, you know, be biased against certain people based on the groups and labels that we define for them. It's so fascinating. I'm still, I, I would love to actually do a really big research project to understand more about the language, the language we use in our head. How does that impact our health? How does that impact how we navigate the world around us? I don't know if I, I did I get off topic? I might be doing that a little bit. <laughs> it's fine, keep going. We could listen to you speak all day. Um, I have a question as you were saying that. Is there like one word or one term that rubs you the wrong way? Like I think that word is infected, 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 infected. And and when I was working with Valerie Wojohowicz and we would do these presentations, she always wanted to include a picture of this open oozing sore. And I'm like, okay, we got to do a warning before we show the audience this. But we don't do a warning when we say that word and use it towards people. And we've heard it so much in relation to COVID even. And it just makes my, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. Because when, when we hear a word, we often create an image in our head of what that word means to us. So that word infected, it is this open oozing sore. And it's we don't talk that way when we talk about cancer. We don't talk that way when we talk about diabetes, but somehow infected has got attached to HIV. So that is one of the biggest words. Um, and other than that, people first language. And, and I still see it all the time, especially with researchers in the hard biological sciences, that we are 
HIV infected people. And that, oh, I just, if that is the last thing I do in my life is to get researchers to stop using that terminology and shift to people first language. It's a matter of a couple words shifting around, but it makes a world of difference because we are people. We, we are not our diagnosis. We are so much more than that. And when we start sticking labels onto people like HIV infected woman, that really it's, I don't know if you've heard of that for um, a thousand cuts. Well, that's what it feels like. So for the past 36 years, every time someone has said something stigmatizing or that I've read something stigmatizing, it's like this little cut on your body. And yet, and they can never really heal because you continue to get cut over and over and over again. So it's not that one instance of the stigmatizing language use, it's that ongoing over and over and over again until you're just so worn out, you just can't take it anymore. And you think, you know, we do that not only with language, we do that with other situations in our microaggressions. That's those little cuts over and over and over again. So this conversation was not supposed to make me cry. Like I was supposed to be done with all of that. But as you were just speaking, you know, getting cut over and over again. And it's usually me doing a lot of the cutting. Like I keep getting back to internalized stigma. But I know that that starts on the outside are thinking how I'm going to be perceived by those on the outside. So when I say something, okay, I am HIV infected. In my mind, that picture that is attached, a person that is HIV infected is nasty and they do not deserve good things in life and they deserve everything bad that comes their way. But in my head, if I'm able to like, you know, turn it around and help those around me to turn that language around to, I'm a woman living with HIV because yes, that is one aspect of my life. That is one thing I'm going, that I have going on, but I still deserve, you know, the world. And I'm thinking like over here how much I beat myself up on the inside. But just continuing to have this conversation I think would be extremely helpful, um, not just for our allies, but for the people that are actually living this experience every day. Yeah, one of my girlfriends told me many moons ago when I was working on myself um, that if I offered you a crisp $100 bill, would you take it? Absolutely, right? Now, if I take that $100 bill and I crumple it up, would you still take it? Yeah. If I took that $100 bill and I dragged it through the mud and it got all dirty, would you still take it? Yes. The worth does not change depending on what we've gone through in life. Our worth is still the same. And using inspiring, empowering language really does make it makes such a difference in how we feel about ourselves um oh, yes so like i'm not calling any organization out particularly but i was reading you know something looking for some hiv fakes and all up and down their fact sheets is you know infected 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 and i'm like this is coming from big people so like i can I can understand, you know, why scientists and doctors and other people are still using this language because a lot of the people that we look up to, you know, to get our recommendations from it, they're still using the language. What can be done? Like, what as an advocate can I do to help, you know, push the ball, you know, to keep moving forward? I think gosh, because I've been doing this for so many years now and I've seen little movement. I think the best thing we can do is to, to use affirming language and less stigmatizing language for ourselves and be role models for others. Um, I think being gentle to talking with others about it is important. Um, I remind my colleagues, I teach my students, you know, and, and even I make mistakes. I've been doing this work, but even things will slip out of my mouth because I continue to hear it and read it and see it. 
it just kind of this quick thing. And it's like, whoa, I can't believe I just said that because I actually know better and that's so uncomfortable. And I think awareness for what we're using to talk about ourselves, what we're using to talk about others and just continue. I mean, I would love to change the world, but sometimes I know that that's a very hard and long process. But if we can change ourselves one woman at a time and just help to support other women in knowing their worth, because after reflecting on, you know, all this work that I've done, I've come to believe that some of this noise is going to happen all the time, no matter what we do. There are going to be groups of people that will unfortunately use this language on purpose. So we've got to be strong enough in our self-worth to know that that's not about us. That is their stuff. And, and we can walk past that with our head held high, you know, and not let it's hard though. It is hard, you know, that we, don't internalize this, but but we are all worthy. Um, and, and if we can build our own self-esteem, build the self-esteem of the women around us, I think that that's going to that's gonna do a lot to make some changes. I feel so empowered just after, you know, hearing you speak um, because it is so important. I love that Krista, I think she just put one of your blogs from 2014, so I guess you really are OG, um, about what started, you know, the Well Project getting the ball rolling and opening their eyes to it. Because I think sometimes even being in the field and as you know, you know, knowing as much as you know, sometimes it is hard and we don't know everything. And you don't really know if you're offending somebody until you know the offense has taken place. So that grace and that gentleness and the softness, I think that is needed, you know, but a firm stance on this is not how I wish to be referred to and this is not it. I thank you so much. Um, Bridget writes, our perception of ourself is reflected in how we present ourselves to others. She's so deep. <laughs> she is so deep. Do you have anything to say to that statement? That is, that is, oh, my echoing is stopped. Yes, our perception is reflective on how we present ourselves. Um, oh, gosh. I think back to when I was using substances. I used substances for a very long time because I did not like myself. I didn't believe in myself, didn't think I was worth anything. And I presented myself like that to the world because I didn't, you know, my self-worth and confidence was so low that my perception of myself, that's how I, I moved around the world. Um, how I navigated my, you know, discussions with others. And, and although I'm still a work in progress, because at times I still don't, I don't feel like I'm fully confident, even though, I mean, I'm going to say I've got two master's degree and a PhD and that I'm still the same person in the, in the heart of it, but I've learned so much along the way. And, and something that I have found really interesting since I got my doctorate, when I present myself as Dr. Vicki Lynn versus Vicki living with HIV, I am treated so much differently in the healthcare system, in people I meet. It's just mind blowing the difference. And I don't deserve to be treated any differently as Dr. Vicki Lynn or Vicki Lynn with HIV. We all deserve respect and dignity and grace. And uh, yes, we should respect people and their titles, I suppose, but it's like another label. It's just a label. I'm still the same person. I don't deserve any more or less respect than any other woman in this world. Um, and I think that starting to treat people with respect, no matter who they are or what they're going through, we don't know. It's just being respectful for everyone. We're going to help build their self-esteem and courage 
and, and that's for me, that's what it's about. I want to help inspire other people to be the best version of themselves. We've all been beaten down over our lives, especially women living with HIV. We have taken a lot in and even women without HIV have experienced a lot of trauma and abuse. Um, you know, and well, I'm going to stop talking there. Um, <laughs> I'm telling you, this could be the Vicky Lynn show. You got it. It's, I, I feel so encouraged, you know, just hearing you speak. Um, Krista says, while there are many providers who use people first language, I've had numerous experiences where doctors or researchers get defensive when I try to advocate for them to update to people first language after a presentation, for example. Have you experienced that as well? Yes, absolutely. And the good news is, is there's more information coming out in the research world about the use of language. So the American Public Health Association, I think, has it has some stuff out about language. Some of the journal editors. So, you know, when we do research and we submit it for publications in a research journal, editors are starting to pay more attention. They're starting to put out language guides. So if you want to publish in our research journal, this is the language you need to use. Um, the There's a whole chapter in um, the American Psychological Association formatting guide on bias language and a, a complete chapter on it. So it's getting out there. It's slow and changing and people, people get I actually, oh goodness, I actually, um, there was a publication written from a scientist in Greece, and I'm actually Greek, I'm half Greek, um, and he was talking about stigma and women living with HIV, but throughout his article, the stigmatizing terminology that he used was just mind-blowing. So I actually wrote a letter to him, and he responded, the way he responded, we won't even talk about that, but it, sometimes I do, I call people out. I will write um, reporters. I will talk to scientists and tell them. And sometimes I met with hostility because this is the way it's done. This is the way it's always done. This is what I read in other scientific journals. So I'm just repeating that, but it, I, we are starting to see a shift and that's the good news. And I think the National Allergy and Infectious Disease of the United States actually put out recently a language guide as well. So the information's getting there. It's just slow. System level changes are really slow. You mute. Thank you. <laughs> I said, even as a fairly new advocate, I'm seeing how slow those changes can be as well. Um, I was diagnosed in 2008, so I'm 13 years positive, and I've seen some changes. So I was going to ask you something like, you equals you, which I'm so grateful for a campaign so, such as that. How has that impacted how we're able to use the language used to describe HIV? I think that's incredibly powerful because it, it reduces our understanding of the disease and know that and when that that messaging first came out actually bruce contacted valerie and me because they were going to be um undetectable is uninfectious and we're like oh no you can't you please don't use that so we we we, we made some some changes with that terminology and i think it's incredibly powerful because hiv is simply a virus that's all it is is a virus and i think now with the COVID pandemic we're people are being more educated on what a virus is and how it can be transmitted. So I think we can use that to educate people further on HIV is simply a virus. Yes, it has a very interesting way of being transmitted, but it is simply a virus and nothing more than that. And the U equals U message has empowered people around the globe to have more confidence in themselves and the relationships that they have. I'm just like, I've seen so much change over the past 36 years. I gotta pinch myself sometimes. I can only imagine. I love speaking to long-term survivors because, you know, 13 years diagnosed, I 
I could never call myself a long-term survivor, although it feels like these have been long days sometimes, you know, so I like to pin myself as like a midterm survivor. I don't know. I definitely did not experience, you know, what you all may have back then, but in the year 2008, even 2021, it can still be kind of rough, starting with the language and stigma. Um, so something like you equals you coming out, that took me from saying to my partners that, you know, there's a 2% chance that I could transmit HIV to you. And that sounds much different than, oh, I can't transmit it because, you know, undetectable equals untransmittable. So even that, like, like that makes me feel good about myself. That makes me feel... Uh, I, it makes me feel good because I was one of those ones who would always refer to myself as I'm HIV infected. Like I would never use people's first language. And that made me feel really, really bad um, because I'm infected. I don't want to infect you. And, you know, I'm sort of something like a plague. I don't, you know, you I don't deserve to be in your space. Why would you even want to put yourself in my space? Now, you know, I'm no threat. You would think that the, having the first child, you know, would have taught me that or I would have been more comfortable to walk in it. But just the language that continues and I, being a person that does a lot of social media stuff, you see a lot of not knowing, you know, in comments or, you know, in posts. And I try to sometimes gently, you know, maybe get in the inbox of the person who posts the misinformation and let them know that there are other ways um, to handle it. But other people just, the ignorance is there. I had a girl one time tell me that she would fight me, but she didn't want to catch AIDS. I was like, what? what? We're still doing this in 2021, but I think continuing to, you know, as you said, start with ourselves and continue to be role models. I think that that will go a far way. I mean, you're a testament to that. Yes. And I would really like anyone, I really want to urge any scientists, and if there's any scientists or researchers listening to this, to use respectful language. Because if you're researching about people living with HIV, you need to respect the people that you're working with. Um, the Denver Principles came out in 1983, and that, on the research that I'm done, that is the first written information about people first language. I can't, there are some stories that it maybe have started at the mental health community, that at conferences, but the only documented evidence that I can find around people first language is the Denver Principles. You know, we are not AIDS infected patients. We are people living with an AIDS diagnosis. And we've seen some other shifts in relation to that. And and I know that there are some talk in the community that people are trying to get rid of the word AIDS. And I don't think anyone's trying to get rid of the word AIDS. We just want to make sure that it's being used appropriately, that it's scientifically based you know a lot of people confuse aids and hiv and and i know in the early days when i was doing some of the workshops i would tell people that you can't transmit aids aids cannot be transmitted from one person to the other and literally case managers in the room are like shocked they're like but no aids is a diagnosis it's a syndrome it's not the virus hiv is the virus so when we're talking about hiv we need to use hiv when we're talking about an aids diagnosis then we use aids diagnosis or stage three hiv um but oh bridget just brought brought up full-blown aids oh my goodness i did a google scholarly search so in the research literature the term full-blown AIDS is still being published today. It's still being published. There's no medical definition. There's no half-blown AIDS. So scientists are using this terminology that has no definition. So we need editors. We need people to to kind of make sure that that's not happening anymore. Oh, that I, I can't stand that term. And I actually just saw it the other day. Somebody said AIDS full-blown HIV. And I'm like, what is that? Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm, I guess we're all in each other's hair because I was, as soon as I heard AIDS, it's like full-blown AIDS. I, I, I don't like it. 
but before I was positive, there were, like, I thought that that was a thing. I never knew. And being that I never thought that HIV would ever have anything to do with me, I never thought that the terminology would have anything to do with me, you know, that's sort of those people's issues. And I think that being intentional and paying attention, I think has definitely allowed me to grow in that area. Like, absolutely. The words that we use to describe each other definitely matter. And when we're in our different, you know, friend groups and circles, continuing to carry that conversation over, I think we'll have someone walking away from that conversation, you know, and maybe in their next conversation, they are a little bit more cognizant of what, you know, they're saying. Because it greatly affects you know, being a grown person, I would never say that sticks and bones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words definitely hurt. I still remember things that were said to me in my childhood that I can't, you know, seem to bury. So, yes, absolutely. Yes, and it's paying attention to what we say in our minds and then changing that message. So what is it? What are the words that I'm using to describe myself? Ooh, you know, when it sounds uncomfortable write it down and then think of something else that you can replace that with. And when that thought comes up, replace that thought. And it takes some work. It takes some awareness of what's going on with you. And, and, and just ch it's changing those messages as well. Cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what we do. We try to change the messages and, and it, it starts with yourself. And I know I've said some horrible things about myself for a very, very long time. And yes, I repeated some of the things that my parents said. Um, one thing my father told me what I, I don't know, I was probably seven years old. And I think that I called my sister or my brother stupid. And my dad sat me down and had a conversation that people are not stupid. Behaviors are stupid. Choices might be stupid, but people themselves are not stupid. And I think that that really has stuck with me all my life, that when we use terminology, when we're describing other people, it, it really does make a difference in how they feel about themselves, how they look at other people. And well, okay, well, I'll stop there for now. <laughs> Um, Bridget mentioned language is a form of self-care. She's so oh, like, yes. I love that. I would have never thought that. But thank you so much for bringing it, you know, to the forefront. Yes, language is a form of self-care. You know, I guess I do it because I recite, like, affirmations and things like that. But I never, I don't know. It's just something you do. It's not, like, self-care. But yes, it is. Thank you, Bridget. I like that. I heard that you helped write that Why Language Matters fact sheet. You and Olivia. Um, Krista wrote it. This is the fact sheet Vicki Lynn helped to author. It's regularly reviewed and updated by our fab editorial director, Olivia Ford, as language is ever evolving. I think that's a very important point. Like, we could change something today you know and then we realized that maybe that wasn't you know the best move or that it could be done better and it's forever evolving um and then not all groups um are comfortable with people first language the autistic community prefers identity first language um, I think people first language should definitely be used when we're talking about health and health issues, but for her, for um, autistic people, they prefer us to use identity first language because autism is a part of who they are and it's not something that, that um, they want to get rid of, so to speak. So they prefer us to use it. And sometimes it is asking people what, what is their preferred language? Just like, you know, we're asking about pronouns. It's, you know, being okay with how others want to describe themselves. Thank you for sharing it because that I've never known that. And it, that was going to be my next question. Like, how do you, you know, and I said it earlier, like you don't usually know that you have offended someone until after it has taken place. So how can you like jump ahead of that? Like, do you become involved, you know, in certain groups? We've already discussed that sometimes the scientific, you know, things that are put out aren't using the best language either. 
but how do you know? I think sometimes it's, it's about having hard conversations and not just in relation to HIV, in relation to racism, and prejudice and oppression and everything else. It's, I would love to see um, community organizations having monthly meetings maybe and sitting down and talking about the language they're using, whether that's in relation to HIV or mental health, whatever it is, it's having those hard conversations. Because sometimes you might be in an office space and somebody says this joke that's not really funny, it's very offensive. So we need to be able to comfortably talk to our colleagues and talk to other people and have these conversations and, and be able to comfortably okay we talk about microaggressions well we also need to talk about micro interventions so that when somebody says something to us that we're able to come back and say something that wow that really hurt or that you know that didn't feel so good for me can you not use that again or you know it and so that's bravery sometimes because a lot of times I didn't stick up for myself because I didn't feel good about myself. Today I stick up probably too much, but you know, you, you, you we're always we're learning and growing in beautiful ways every day. And I think bringing others on that journey with us, you know, it's having those hard conversations with our colleagues, with our family and friends. Even sometimes we got to start there because they're using things that hurt us especially now we got the holidays coming up. So we're all going to be getting with our families and, and they may be saying things that are hurtful and it is pulling them aside or sending them an instant, you know, a private message, not calling them out in front of a group, but, but pulling them aside if we need to, but even doing it in front of a group, if we can say that, if we feel safe enough saying that, because safety is so very important. Let's see. Um, Krista was saying that in a recent meeting that it got brought up how birth control is problematic because it's basically another form of controlling women's bodies. Contraception is the preferred term. Have you ever thought of that? I, I didn't. I haven't, I haven't had to use contraception in a long time. So that, that is very powerful. But I love that. I love that this is expanding because unfortunately a lot of the terminology surrounding women in medical books is very stigmatizing and othering and controlling i love that oh my gosh i see another faculty coming out <laughs> all right you know we down for it um bridget was talking about having those hard conversations I am a firm believer in it definitely can begin with a conversation, whether that, you know, is asking your partner if they've been tested, you know, for STDs, STIs, HIV, um, talking about, you know, any past traumas. I know that it isn't always the easiest or the most comfortable thing to do, but I definitely think that they go a far way. Um, I saw something else. Oh, Krista's just bigging you up in the comments. Have you pre presented at national conferences on language? Yes, I've done, I've done a few national conferences on language and, and they were well received. The people in the audience were very receptive of it. Um, oh my gosh. See, and it's so important for our children that we're being more cognizant of what we say. I mean, I know, and you mentioned it earlier, as we're growing up, some of the terminology or things our parents might have said, or our classmates might have said that our teachers might, they, that's those little cuts that we're getting, you know, and they, they end up becoming deep wounds for some of us, you know, I was called stupid, you can't do anything right, you know, and those are things that you start to, well, if this person that I respect greatly is using this terminology about me, then maybe I, I'm not good enough, you know, and, and oh, I love your little baby. And it's, it's being mindful of what we say to our children in front of our children. Um, oh, so incredibly powerful. Thank you. She's, I guess she, she's just staring up at me now. Hold on. Say hi to everybody. Oh, Say hello. Yay. Say hey. <laughs> We're learning about language, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so my teacher, I think I was in the fourth grade, 
and we were living in a women's abuse shelter, my mom and my brother and my sister and I. So leaving from the shelter and going to this new school, and I remember her name, I remember exactly what she looked like in her red glasses. And she asked me one day, why do you act so hopeless? So I said to my mom later on in the car, I'm like, mom, what does hopeless means? Because I didn't even know that it was something that was negative um, or could have been perceived as negative in that instance. And mommy explained it to me. And she said, why did you ask me that? And she went and advocated on my behalf as a child to that teacher that you don't use these types of words, you know, because you don't know where you're meeting someone at. Like, that was a very vulnerable and traumatic time in my life. And for that to come from a teacher who was someone that I respected and that was in a place of power. Like, I remember that to this day. I'm like, I'm not hopeless. I'm not hopeless. I'm not helpless. Like, I, I can do this. And just to think that that is something that I've carried with me for so long, I guess that would be one of those cuts. That <laughs> It's so interesting that we, those moments stick out for us and we remember them, but there may have been other times where the teacher told you you were smart and you were beautiful and you could do things, but we don't really remember those for some reason as much as we remember those cuts, those wounds, those attacks on us sometimes is how I feel. Um, that's why it's so important to for awareness, to be aware of what we're using in our own head and, and changing that. It's incredibly powerful. So if I had imagined or if I could have imagined during my childhood that I had like a crown on and all of the positive things were like being stacked up, if I could have visualized that, maybe I could have held on to some of those kinder things that were said. It just, I felt, felt it a little deeper. I still feel the negative things. I'll push a comment to the side, but you know, something negative that said, I'm going to harp on that. I'm going, you know, beat myself up for it sometimes even. Um, but just, yes, painting a different picture in my mind, I think would definitely help and be beneficial for me moving forward. Let's say Bridget's into this conversation. She said, Oh, you see Bose? <laughs> hey, Bose. <laughs> I love this community. I love that we there is a sisterhood of, you know, someone that will understand. Because if I tried to explain these things to some of my family members or friends, they wouldn't understand why it's a big deal. Someone had to check me one day on using the term partner. So like okay well you know i have a boyfriend a fiance a husband whatever and it, them explaining to me that using the term partner wasn't so much for me but it was for other people who may be having an issue with the terminology that's being used or being offended by it and i never thought about it it's, it's not so much you know a personal just like singular experience this is a whole community and just because it isn't directly affecting me doesn't mean that it isn't affecting someone else. So I've, I'm really appreciative for moments like that. Someone did, you know, pull me to the side. Even, I don't have my pronouns up today, but that has been something that I have been trying to get better at. It's, yes, I know, you know, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I need to, I need to make that explicit sometimes because it may not affect me so much, but it could, you know, our next sister. And definitely never want to. I love how Dr. Um, Egu said, I never want to be a part of someone else's trauma. So if I can play my part. Were you going to say something? I was going to say that's incredibly powerful. Yes. Um, I've switched to saying partner, and I think I've done that, I don't know, for a long time now. My partner, my partner. Um, it's so important for other people to be seen and, and understood, and that's incredibly powerful. Absolutely. I'm just making sure we haven't missed any comments or anything. So I think that we are all caught up. My um, The language that I use 
<laughs> I'm so grateful that, you know, I have these little sponges around me now. So I feel like me using this language and even just talking about HIV, you know, unconventionally, you know, outside, sometimes in the real world, HIV gets this bad, bad connotation as well as AIDS. But we just sit here and talk about it. It's normal here. Zion can go get my meds. Zion, you know, what is HIV? You know, just having those conversations. And I quizzed him last night, and he didn't seem to have picked up on anything. So I think, once again, this is a conversation that you have to keep having. Keep, it's not like we can just do it one time and it be it and everyone catch on because that definitely is not the case. Um, do you have anything that you want would like to add? Is, is there anything that you've missed? Uh, I just want to first thank the Well Project. They have been so instrumental in, in supporting me in my journey um, and, and helping so many women. And I know... Advocating for HIV issues and even being an activist, you know, I, I marched with ACT UP in the early days that what I have come to find that system level changes are difficult and changing the world is difficult. However, when you can form a community or network of like-minded people, that's where your strength is going to come from. You know, sometimes we have to shut out the rest of the noise and just and and work within the people that understand us, the people that can support us and continue to build that network. And I want every woman to know whether they're living with HIV or not, that they are worthy, that they can dream and do whatever it is that they want to do. And I'm gonna give, use me an as an example. I contracted HIV in 1985 during an intimate, I was in a relationship with intimate partner violence. I was homeless living under a bridge. I was a substance user. Um, I woke up every morning of my life looking for dope, you know, and I was able to overcome that and go to school and, and get a couple degrees under, under my belt. But, and I want other women to know that they can do the same thing. And, and I'm here to support you in your dreams and goals. If you want to go back to school or if you want to follow a trade and you need some help, support, and guidance, I am here to help you. I'll help you edit your, your entrance, you know, essays, whatever it is that you need. Because I think that we... I didn't do this by myself. I didn't get to where I am today by myself. Other people believed in me, supported me, and helped me, and I want to be that for other people. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, the comment just came up. I think it's okay. One thing I think Kim brought up is the language around vertical transmission. We've stopped using mother to child transmission. I know many born with HIV or acquired HIV at birth refer to themselves as verticals, but that doesn't feel comfortable for others to use that terminology. Interesting. Oh, that's powerful, which makes me want to have a conversation with those to understand that a little bit more. They call themselves verticals. Yes, I hear it all the time. So that's an example. I I wouldn't think that that would be offensive. Like that's what I hear them calling themselves. So I just thought that that's the thing to do. I didn't know that it was politically incorrect or correct. Like, or that someone would be uncomfortable with using it. It's verticals. Interesting. Okay, okay. We definitely need to understand more about how language impacts us internally and how we navigate the world. Yes. Interesting. Absolutely. Um, language should be part of trauma informed care. Absolutely. I um <laughs> my sister was telling me a story about a lady at work who kept she wasn't trained yet, so the, they kept saying, oh, she can't do that. She can't do that. She can't do that. And eventually, the lady just snapped. And not knowing that they were triggering things that were already going on in her mind. Oh, she can't do that. It's like, no, I'm capable. I'm fully capable of everything. Stop saying it. So I've definitely applauded that lady in the moment for being able to stand up for herself. And I think it was a learning lesson for everyone there is that we may trigger some something in people sometimes 
that we aren't even aware is happening. Um, Olivia. It is also really important to remember self-identity and the importance of that. Ultimately, every term can't be comfortable for everybody. One person's empowerment can be another's trigger. We can only strive to reduce the harm language can cause. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because I, I guess it would be really hard to please everybody in any situation. But what, you know, how do we self-identify? Thank you, Olivia. Yeah. <laughs> I love this community. Um, and using language is a way to keep lifting up people. I think that being in such a virtual space, everything is so, um, you know, technology is at the forefront of almost everything that we're doing now. So we may not be speaking so many words to each other, but even the language that we use to type and to communicate and um okay i thought i was missing uh, missing something um even the intentionality sometimes between you know whether or not we capitalize you know words because we aren't speaking to each other and we're having to read behind this guy's um you know a computer screen most of the time being respectful in how you how you um, talk to people through your communication, whether it's written or spoken, I think is very, very, very important. Like, not using all caps, because stop yelling at me. <laughs> all right, well, I think that this has been an excellent way to end this year with A Girl Like Me Live. Thank you so much for taking part of our first kickoff episode and the one to kind of conclude this um, year. This has been amazing. I, I feel so empowered and inspired and maybe I can go get another master's and a, a PhD. Maybe. I don't, know. I don't know. But thank you so much. Um, let's make sure that we have closed up everything on the end yes we have so once again everyone thank you so much for joining this week's session of a girl like me live once again thank you vicky we love you so much thank you for being a part of the well project community if you have not yet bridget hush if you have not yet completed our survey that is still available um the link will be in the comment section at some point your responses help us continue to make sure that our programming is meeting the needs of our community so thank you thank you thank you so much we love you and i hope that you have a great day thank you